As the kids make their uh, way out, if you want to take your Bibles and find Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start there this morning. <clears throat> and we'll continue um, examining the various portions of the vision statement. And so you see on the screen there before you, vision statement 2. Part 2 sounds kind of silly because it's not two different parts, it's one statement. But it is broken into um, about six sentences, about two sentences per portion. And so last week we looked at the first portion of our vision statement, that we exist to make disciples uh, and glorifying Jesus in making disciples through the faithful teaching of the full counsel of God's Word, as well as developing and maintaining authentic relationships in the church and the community and around the world. And so today we're going to continue that thought process, and we're going to look at uh, another scope of that, if you will, or just another portion or emphasis. And so you see, I don't know if you've noticed or not, that the next portion is actually on the backside of your bulletin. If you have a bulletin, you can look there. It's going to be on the screen. Uh, But the next portion reads this way. It says, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, DBC is committed to loving one another as Christ has loved, loved us, excuse me, sacrificing our time, treasures, and talents as well as living a life of worship that glorifies God. And so right away, what I hope when you see that, you, you notice or you catch on to, is that our desire is to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Not in a fanciful way, but in a way that honors God. And, and, and one of the things that I, I always have, I feel like I always have to qualify this or clarify this, maybe is another way to put it. Whenever we talk about the Spirit leading, and then I make a comment about not in a fanciful way, I feel like that disclaimer is necessary because of what we see happening in the church today. And in the church today, there's this growing emphasis uh, on the role of the Holy Spirit uh, leading people, and and, and the the Holy Spirit does lead people, and I don't want to diminish that. But what we're seeing happen in many of our churches is people are appealing to the Holy Spirit of God to do things that are contrary to God's Word. Okay, And so when we talk about being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, we are talking about being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit within the confines of what has been revealed to us in God's Word. We talked last week about the reality of God's Word and that we don't need anything else. That's a reality that I hope you know and understand this morning and are clinging to. All that pertains to life and godliness is found within the pages of Scripture. All right? And so we want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit leading us as we interact with the Scriptures. Not only organizationally as a body of believers, but our prayer is that as individuals too. That we want to look into God's Word and we want to be led by the Spirit in a way that honors God. Because the Holy Spirit will never lead the people of God to do or to be anything that is contrary to God's word and subsequently then unpleasing to the Lord. This is, and that sounds like simple, right? But what we're literally seeing in the landscape of our churches in America today, and in some cases around the world, but really here in America, is that we are operating, not we, but a lot of churches are operating under the guise of the leading of the Holy Spirit to function in ways that are contrary to God's Word. Nope. Maybe I'm closed-minded. Maybe I'm not. But God's God, in the form, the person of the Holy Spirit, will never lead his people 
to do things or to be things that are contrary to what he has revealed in his word. And we want to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in a way that is not unpleasing to the Lord, but in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. My prayer is that we understand and that we share the same sentiment when we say that we want everything that we do to be pleasing to the Lord. And I don't just mean as a church, okay? One of the things that we've got to understand is that the, the, the people who make up the church, okay, the church is not a building. This building we are sitting in with air conditioning, some walls, and a roof is not the church. It's a building. You are the church, Okay, And so as we talk about this reality of the church being pleasing to God, the church as an organization is going to really struggle to be pleasing to God as an organization if the people of God as individuals don't strive to be pleasing. Okay, So when we talk about being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in a way that is pleasing to God, this has to function individually and organizationally. And so if we want to please God in all that we do, the best way to do that with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock your socks off with this one, right? You probably never heard this. The best way to be pleasing to God is to imitate Jesus. It's to imitate Jesus. I trust by now you've found your way to Ephesians chapter 5. I have not. I had to do so now. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says this. Therefore, we'll talk about the therefore in just a second. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We see Paul here exhort the Ephesian believers to take what they have learned. You might recall, if you were here over a year ago when we preached through the book of Ephesians, you might recall that the book of Ephesians is six chapters and it breaks into two parts. Part one is theological instruction. Church at Ephesus, here's what you need to know. Chapters four, five, and six, the second part of the book are, here's what you do with that instruction. Okay? So one of the things we've got to understand about God's word is it never conveys information just so we can know more stuff. God's word, when it communicates and conveys information, it is so it can be acted upon. And that's why we see words like, therefore. Since you've heard all of these theological teachings about your standing in Christ and what Christ has accomplished and, and all of these things that are fleshed out through the first three chapters, Paul then in chapter 4 of Ephesians speaks to the reality of unity. And then he says in chapter 5, therefore, be imitators of God. Imitating God is to be the heartbeat of the believer. Not just the believer at DBC, and not just DBC as an organization. Imitating God is to be our heartbeat. You think about what we just sang. We sing a song about gracefully broken. And, and, I, and I, I'm, not any, I'm not the discerner of hearts, right? You guys have heard me say this a million times. But when we sing things like, here I am, God, arms wide open, I surrender. Are you singing a song? Or is your heartbeat to be in tune with the God of the universe? Because that's what is available when Paul writes the theological instruction of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. That's what he's communicating. 
Because of who Jesus Christ is and because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, you and I, as sinful as we may be, being made right by Christ, get to approach God and say, here I am, gracefully broken. I'm a mess, God, and yet you can and will use me, so use me. That's not the same thing as singing a song. Imitating God happens when we surrender. When we avail ourselves to him and his desires. And imitating God, not only is it to be the heartbeat of the believer, not only is it for uh, the believer period, not just believers at DBC, but all followers of Christ. Not just the leaders, not just the spiritual people. If you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ, the word of God is adamantly clear. The expectation is that you are an imitator of Jesus. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that. The, like, God has expectations. That's why we have the full counsel of his word so that we could know him, so that we could know us. And when I mean know us, I mean our sinfulness, our depravity, and the only hope that we have of relating to him. That's the reality of the word of God, is that all people would be imitators of Jesus. And when Paul calls the Ephesian believers to be imitators of God, he's calling them to a condition. The idea being conveyed here is becoming Therefore, be imitators of God. Be becoming like God. Again, we have to qualify everything in the world we live in today. Many theological systems say that's what we do in this life. We become like God, and then when we die, we're little gods. No, that's hogwash. It's not consistent with Scripture at all. But the Word of God does tell us that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of God's Word, the people of God are being transformed to be more like Jesus. And that's the reality here of becoming an imitator of God. And so this statement is of great significance. It demonstrates that the believer is not the same as they were prior to becoming a believer. And they ought not be the same as they were shortly after they became a believer. And they ought not be the same way they were yesterday if they're a believer. The reality of being an imitator of Jesus is becoming more like him. This continues on day after day after day after day. You don't go through becoming like Jesus. You don't reach a pinnacle. If you think you are enough like Jesus, you have demonstrated that you've got a long ways to go. And the call of Scripture is that we would be being conformed to be like Jesus. And the framework for our becoming like Jesus is what we know about God. And that's why Ephesians starts with the theological truths that it does. Because the knowledge of God transforms. And remember, we talked last week about developing and maintaining authentic relationships. And we said some relationships are contracts and some relationships are covenants. Contracts say I will keep this relationship until it no longer serves me. And a covenant says I will keep this relationship based on identity. The fact that you are made in the image of God and in that alone have value and worth. And we closed last week with this statement. Covenants transform. And that's what we're seeing here. God's word. 
transformation that we can be pleasing to God. We are becoming imitators of him. And perhaps the obvious question at this point is, what does it mean to imitate? Exactly what you think it does. To imitate is simply to say or do what others do. And what is the object of our imitation? Christ. And what is the method of our imitation? To walk in love as Christ has loved. If we are going to be led by the Holy Spirit and walk in love as Christ has, which is what we saw there at the beginning of our statement, and we need to do just that, there is no sense in overcomplicating it. We cannot claim to walk with Christ and not walk in the same manner as Christ. We cannot claim to walk with Christ and not walk in the same manner as Christ. Because the expectation of God's, of God's word is that we would. Oh, I'm getting this over here. Because the expectation of God's word. Where you at, Aaron? <laughs> you might want to turn me down now. We cannot claim to walk with Christ and not walk in the same manner as Christ. And so biblically, when we talk about this idea of walk, what we're seeing is a specific reference to our behavior. But don't get that confused with what I'm saying. I'm not preaching moralism. I'm not telling you this morning to try harder. I'm not telling you this morning to be better or to do more. I'm saying that when a person is made new in Christ, he's a new creation, and as a new creation, with the help of the Holy Spirit, their behaviors should imitate the behaviors of Jesus. If you want to know what's wrong with the church in America today, look no further than this. It's funny, we live in a Christian nation, but we're not walking like Christ. And what is the primary behavior of Christ that we should be emulating as followers of Christ is sacrifice. It's sacrifice. And that's why you see in our statement, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, we desire to sacrifice our time, our talent, and our treasures. If we are going to imitate Christ, then we must be willing to sacrifice in a myriad of ways. And this is the first thing I want you to see and understand this morning is that if we're going to imitate Christ, imitating Christ requires sacrifice. Of all the things that were necessary of Christ to fulfill the will of the Father, his sacrifice was chief among them. But Christ's sacrifice of himself wasn't his only sacrifice. Consider the reality, he sacrificed the glory of heaven when he became the incarnate word of God, John 1.14. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He sacrificed his perfection when he became sin, even though he knew no sin, so that those who would believe would become the righteousness of God. Literally, Christ's entire life was about sacrifice whether it was sacrificing his glory for the fathers 
or sacrificing his time for the betterment of the people he came to save. He was constantly sacrificing of himself. And our desire at DBC is to sacrifice as Christ did. Why? Because we are imitators of Christ. Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writing says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see here, Paul calls the Romans to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul is teaching us that a sacrifice is something that is given up to a deity. Honestly, if most of us had a conversation about sacrifice, it would probably center around two things. One, the reality of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And then number two, we probably have some interaction, or I've had some interaction and some understanding with sacrifice that would be like in the Old Testament. And we saw it really in two forms. One, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law, but then also the sacrifices of the pagans. You know, you think of like the god Molech. These people sacrifice their kids. They literally threw them in this fire to the pagan god Moloch. And so we're, we have some ideas and some understanding of this reality of a sacrifice. And Paul, when he's writing here, he's, he's really encapsulating that. A sacrifice is something that's given up to a deity or God. And that is to say that believers, those who Paul is appealing to by the mercies of God to be a living sacrifice, what he's saying is their lives ought to be lived by them to the glory of God in a sacrificial way. There is no way around this. If we are to imitate Jesus, whose life was about sacrifice, even if we wanted to try to, well, that's not the same, or it's not like, we have it, Paul told the church at Rome. I'm not even talking about Jesus, Romans. I'm saying you ought to be a sacrifice. You ought to be a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God. If believers are going to be living sacrifices, because it's interesting, isn't it, in, our, in, our, in that portion of our, our vision there, there's qualifiers to what we mean by sacrifice. What are we going to sacrifice? See, because it, it, it builds, right? What are we going to sacrifice? Why are we going to sacrifice? Not just to imitate Jesus, but because of what we saw last week. Because we're committed to developing and maintaining authentic relationships in the church, in the community, and in the world. And to do that, we're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to sacrifice our time, our talent, and our treasures. So often, I'm guilty of this. And many of you are as well, but so often in our lives, we use or we definitely hear this phrase, I just don't have time. I just don't have time. I'm going to say something very blunt. You always have time for that which is a priority. You will always have time for that which is a priority. We had somebody in our growth group last year say, we ought to stop saying I don't have time for that. And we ought to start saying that's not a priority for me. But that, that's not very becoming of the church, is it? If we say, that's not a priority to me. So we don't. We say we don't have time. But we will always have time for that which is a priority. So when we say in our vision statement that we're committed to loving one another by sacrificing our time, if we truly commit to that, then our true priorities are going to be exposed. 
And here's the thing I want you to understand. That's not all bad. Some of us need our priorities exposed. We're on easy street thinking we got this thing all figured out. But sometimes we need, that's why we sing songs like, God, I'm broken and I'm before you. I surrender to you because that's, a, that's an appeal for the God of the universe by his grace and his mercy to reveal things to us like maybe it's our priorities, right? And so this isn't a bad thing when you, when you hear these things. I'm not saying that every waking second of our life has to be at church or with church people. But do we function from a disposition that says, I will put others ahead of myself? Do we function from a disposition that says, I will sacrifice of the things that I might be focused upon with my time in order to better imitate Christ? As this doesn't apply just to our time, it also applies to our talents. God has gifted people for all kinds of things and for all kinds of purposes. And oftentimes, sometimes our talents and our time overlap when it comes to sacrifice. How do we utilize our talents within our time? Sometimes we sacrifice our time simply to be with someone, right? Other times it might be because we have something to offer by way of how it is that God has gifted us. Whatever talent you have, whatever ability God has given you, it is not strictly for your gain. In fact, that's secondary. The primary reason you have any ability and giftedness is for the glory of God. But if we don't sacrifice, look, we're going to hog our talents. We're going to keep them to ourselves. They're not about us, ultimately. They're about the glory of God and the edification of the body of Christ and for the purpose of connecting with those outside of the body of Christ. And so we see sacrifice of time and talent. There's also the reality of being committed to sacrificing our treasures. I imagine by now you just see kind of as we progress, there's a very close relationship to all three of these things. And perhaps the greatest barometer of our sacrificial attitude of our lives is through the sacrifice of our treasures. Now, as we always say, it's not wrong to have nice things, right? Like, that's, I don't believe that the Word of God calls the people of God to live lives of extreme poverty. There are some people who would teach that. I don't think that God's Word calls us to that at all. But when it comes to our treasures, there is a fundamental principle we must never lose sight of. Everything that we possess is on loan from the Father. You have nothing. I have nothing. There literally is nothing that is in our possession that is truly ours. Everything we have is on loan from the Father. And so sacrificing to the glory of God is simply acting upon the acknowledgement that everything we have really belongs to him. It's really not ours at all. And for the sake of loving others as Christ has loved, that's that statement there in, our, in our, this portion of our vision statement, we want to love others as Christ has loved us, we must be willing to sacrifice of our time, our talent, and our treasures. David Livingstone was a Scottish missionary and explorer who spent 33 years in the heart of Africa. He endured much suffering as he labored to spread the gospel and open the continent to missionaries. This godly missionary once remarked, 
People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. As much as we talk about our sacrifice in imitating Christ, Livingstone, he gets it right, doesn't he? God is worthy of everything we are and everything that we have. And we will operate as though he is, he is worthy of everything that we are and everything that we have, or he is not. That's how each of us will operate. He is worthy or he is not. There is no in-between. We sacrifice or we do not. But only one of those options is an imitation of Jesus. And so imitation, excuse me, imitation requires sacrifice, but imitation also requires worship. Worship. Christ's entire being was about the worship and about the glory of his Father. Time and time again, we read in the Gospels that the will of Christ was to do the will of his Father. Why was Jesus so concerned with the will of his Father? Was it because he was Jesus and he had to be? No, it was because he worshipped the Father. The idea of worship, when we think of it biblically, is the idea of being worthy or worth-ship, simply worthy of being worshipped. And Jesus certainly lived his life like his father was worthy. He prayed to him. He was obedient to him. And Jesus, as we have noted, pursued the father's glory through the completion of his will. Jesus clearly demonstrated that the father was worthy when he lived and died according to the father's will. Imitating Jesus requires that the believer live a life of worship of the one who is worthy, and that is God. If you're going to imitate Christ, not only are we going to be called to sacrifice, but imitating Christ requires that we have the right object of worship. In the church today, many folks do not have the right object of worship. And if people in our churches today sat down and made a list of the things that deserve their worship or even the things that they, by their acknowledgement, worship, they could make a list, God would be on that list somewhere. Many people in our churches would be on top of things enough to even put God at the top of that list. But if we go back up to what we looked at a few minutes ago and we begin examining our priorities and we begin examining how we sacrifice our time and our talents and our treasures what I think many people in our churches today would find is that their priorities don't match what they say they worship. And we cannot imitate Jesus without God being number one 
worthy of worship in our lives. Period. Can you imagine? We like to do this from time to time. Can you imagine if Jesus functioned like the American church today? And I don't just want to beat up on the American church, but sometimes we have to call a spade a spade. But could you imagine if Jesus functioned like much of the American church? Oh, that's hard. I'm probably not going to do that. That, that might upset people, so we should Jesus told the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. He called them things like broods of vipers. Jesus did not shrink under the weight of cultural pressure. Why? Because his father was worth dying for. That's the reality of the situation. And so again, I want to look at Romans chapter 12. Paul says it well, doesn't he? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He then says, holy and acceptable to God. And then he he ends it this way, which is your spiritual worship. The idea of living is that of a continual. So the believer is to be a living sacrifice or to continually be sacrificing one's own life in worship of God. The New King James calls this your reasonable service. I love this interpretation. Paul writing to the church in Rome says, it is reasonable to live your life as a sacrifice for God because he's worthy. It's reasonable for that to take place in our lives. And if we think about all that has transpired, what we know historically of Christ and what he's done and all that's been accomplished. It is reasonable, right? It is reasonable that we would imitate Jesus and that imitating Jesus is going to require sacrifice and it's going to require worship of the right things. And so I submit this morning that it's worth noting Back where we started in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, what Paul says about the sacrifice of Christ. He exhorts the believers to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And then he says this, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. His sacrifice, which was a form of his worship of the Father, was regarded as a fragrant offering. And what does this mean? It simply means that it was pleasing to the Father. Any of y'all ever, one of my favorite smells in the world is Thanksgiving time, like fall time, because that's when, you know, you start like burning the, the apple cinnamon candles, the pumpkin, like that. And, and you've all hopefully had the experience of walking into your home or someone's home and just feeling your nostrils be filled with that just wonderful smell. And you take a deep breath in and you think... Ah, it's good to be home. I hope that's your sentiment. That's a picture of this fragrant offering, the sacrifice of Jesus. When the sacrifice of Jesus took place, the Father was pleased. And that's the reality. I imagine that there's not an actual smelling that takes place. It's a picture or a euphemism of this reality of the sacrifice of Jesus being satisfactory in the eyes of his father. He lived his life in sacrifice because his father was worthy. And when he breathed out his last and he gave up his spirit and the earth shook and the veil was torn in the temple, the father 
was pleased. Christ's sacrifice was pleasing to the Father. And our lives ought to be pleasing to the Father as well. I think often of these realities and we're familiar with Scripture enough that, you know, we're, we're marching on in this life and we're waiting for the day when we stand before Jesus and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But if I could be honest with you again, I want to pick on the American church for a minute. We talk far more about being well done, hearing well done, good and faithful servant than we do hearing, depart from me, you doers of iniquity. I never knew you. And we got to remember, brothers and sisters, when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he says to the religious people, who are in his midst, in that day, some will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And his response to them was, and I will say to them, depart from me, you doer of iniquity. I never knew you. Brothers and sisters, I'm not, I don't want to beat anybody up. I don't want to, but I want us to understand something this morning. If our lives are not characterized by sacrifice to God for his glory and for the betterment of others, and our lives are not lived out of an act of spiritual worship, which is reasonable, something is amiss. And when you combine that with the fact that many people in our churches today function this way and then expect they're going to get before Jesus and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and they're going to be shocked. When what they hear instead is, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. Now again, I want to go back to where I started. I'm not talking about moralism. You can't be good enough to earn the favor of God. So the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not try harder. You don't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You recognize that by God's grace, you realize you are broken, you are sinful, and you are separated from God. But because of his grace and his mercy in Christ Jesus, by faith, you can be healed, you can be made whole. And the only appropriate, acceptable, or reasonable response to that is the sacrificing of your own life for the object of worship who is worthy. That's what the gospel calls us to. And the former Presbyterian minister, Eugene Peterson, says this about worship. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. And in a more fleshed out demonstration of this reality, Archbishop William Temple says this about worship. For worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for the self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin." Worship is not a 20-minute period prior to preaching where we sing. 
Worship is a lifestyle. It is a posture of the heart of the man who is in awe of the fact that even though he is born separated from God because of sin, he can have a relationship with the God of the universe because of that God's grace and mercy for him. And this is no small thing. And the more one meditates on this reality, the more one's heart will be in tune with God's and the result will be that of worship. May our lives be about the worship of the only one who is worthy of our worship. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, DBC is committed to loving one another as Christ has loved us, sacrificing our time, treasures, and talents, as well as living a life of worship that glorifies God. May we be imitators of Christ and love as he has loved, sacrificing and worshiping with our lives, because as the Apostle Paul said, this is our reasonable service. Let's pray together. Father, the calling to be an imitator of your son Jesus is a high, high calling. But Father, there is no way around the reality that that is what you have called your church to. So help us today, God. If we leave here and we meditate only on one thing, God, may it be the need to imitate Christ. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you for the fact that, God, we have your word and we can look into it and we can see the life of Christ. We can see the sacrifice with which he lived. We, we know why he lived a life of sacrifice. We know how he lived a life of sacrifice. We know what his sacrifice has accomplished all because you've been faithful to, ma- to preserve and maintain your word. And so God, help us to not neglect that. Help us to treasure your word. God, help us to value your word and to look into it regularly. That as we were reminded today that we wouldn't reserve worship as an act of something we do for a few moments, but that we would recognize that worship is a heart's posture. It's a disposition to falling more in love with you because of your grace and your mercy every day. Father, help us to live out loving others as Christ has loved us by sacrificing our time, our talents, and our treasures and living our lives in such a way, God, that you would be worshiped. Work in our hearts, work for our good, God, and work most importantly for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.